So let me ask you a question. How is your relationship with the Lord? How's your relationship with God? This is a, a question that Christians ask each other. You know, I've had mentors in my life ask me this. Maybe you've had someone ask you, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus? Now, when I ask you a question like that, some of you are saying, you know, it's great. And a lot of you feel kind of bad, like pretty much instantly as if I just asked you, how's your diet? <laughs> like, it could be a lot better, right? And that's how I honestly feel like it's just natural, I think, to feel that way when someone asks you a question like that. How's your relationship with God? What's the status look like? Give me an update. It's instant that we start to see all these shortcomings in our life. We start to see all the things that we're not quite doing as well as we could be doing. Like, oh, yeah, probably uh, could be praying more, you know. And I think about reading the Bible. It's like I do it, but not enough. I'm sure God's kind of disappointed in my Bible reading. And then I lost my temper this week, and I did some things I'm not proud of, and I, I yelled out some words in, in traffic that I wouldn't want my pastor to hear, you know what I'm saying? So when you ask me how my relationship with the Lord is going, it's easy to feel like God is disappointed in you, isn't it? It's easy to feel, yeah, isn't it easy to feel like God is got to be disappointed in me? Because if I'm being honest, there's a lot of times I'm disappointed in me. My goal as a pastor is to help you understand how much God delights in you. God, he takes delight in you. And as you understand that, it will help you grow into delighting in God. Isn't it true that you like to be with people who you know like you? I mean, come on. If you come around someone, you know they like, you can just tell, you know, they, t they tell you and you can see it in their actions. Like, this guy obviously is a fan. This lady, she loves me. Like, I like being around those people, okay? It's like, she's great. I like her. I like that guy. Why? Because he likes me, you know? And you need to start to understand how much God likes you. He loves you and he likes you. He does not love and like some future version of you. A lot of you act like God tolerates you right now and that someday he's going to like the person you're hoping to become. You think, you think so often, you think, well, when I get my crap together and I stop messing around and I, I stop making the same silly mistakes and I grow up a little bit, then God will like me. You realize that if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, it is impossible. Listen to me. God cannot love you more than he does right now. His love is perfect. He is perfect. And he sees you in Jesus and Jesus in you. So he's not going to like you more in 20 years. He already likes you because he likes Jesus in you. And he created you. He loves you. He wants to pour out his favor on you. And we honestly are the ones that have a hard time receiving it sometime. You don't have to earn God's favor, and you can't. Yet God delights in you because Jesus has earned God's favor for us, and he has imputed his righteousness into us. People ask this question, you know, uh, what's really the big difference between Christianity and, and all these other religions? And, and they'll say things like, aren't all religions the same? And I want you to know, yes, all religions are the same. All religions basically say the same thing. You have a problem. You're not good enough, and you need a savior. And guess what? He's you. He's you. If you'll work hard, if you'll do good deeds, if you'll take a trip to Mecca, if you'll go on a two-year missionary trip on your bicycle and a tie around your neck, 
right? Like, if you'll do those things, you will save yourself. And it's a crushing system of oppression being a part of a religion, right? Because if you do a good job, you become prideful. And when you don't do a good job, which is more often than not, you feel crushed by your inadequacies. All religions are the same. And then there's Christianity. Christianity, which says, you are messed up. You have a problem. You need a savior. And he's Jesus. He did the work that you could not do. He took your place. He paid your debt. And now he offers you salvation as a free gift that you receive through faith. There are a lot of religions in the world, and then there's Christianity. Christians, we know that Jesus did the work for us so we could receive salvation by grace through faith. There are two groups. There's two groups, people who are working to earn salvation and people who have faith in Jesus to save them. And aren't you glad to be a Christian? If you place your faith in Jesus, I mean, this is a hope that we have unlike anything else. I wanna talk to you today about faith and works. Faith and works. Jesus in John 17, verse four, he was praying what's called the high priestly prayer. He's talking to God the Father, and he said, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. How many of you can say, God, I have accomplished all the work you gave me to do perfectly? Nobody right? We're sinners. We fail. We lie. We cheat. We lose our temper. Do I need to go through the old 10 commandments again? Like we're all on the same page, right? But Jesus said, I have accomplished the work you gave me to do. He lived a perfect life without sin. Then he goes to the cross. He pays the price for our sins. And what did he say? He breathed his last and said, it is finished. All he did was to give us what we could not do. He brought us forgiveness. He purchased our freedom. He gave us entrance into heaven. He gained God's favor for us, and then he finished the job. He did it for us. And then that's why we know Ephesians 2.8, this is a passage which kind of sums this up. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, you cannot add any requirement of works to Jesus and then call that Christianity. And the people do this all the time. They, they add stuff to Jesus. Like, yeah, Jesus is good, but that's not enough. You've also got to do this. Yeah, you've got you to accept Jesus, but you've also got to get baptized. If, if you say that, then you've just made that a work. Jesus is good, but you've also got to speak in tongues. Jesus is good, but you've also got to pay your tithes. Jesus is good, but you've also got to do good deeds. You've got to get confirmation. Jesus is good, but you've also got to deny yourself and stop watching that, right? Jesus plus anything ruins everything. You understand that? It's through Jesus alone that we're saved. Salvation comes through grace by believing in Jesus, by placing our faith in Jesus alone, and we can't boast about it because we did nothing to earn it, okay? So we're on the same page. That all being said, I wanna jump into our passage for today, James chapter two. James chapter two, verse 14. We're gonna start out there. And if you have a Bible, uh, you can open it up to James two. There's a Bible app you can download on your phone. I recommend called YouVersion. You can also just open up the browser on your phone and type in Bible. You're allowed to be on your phone in church. You know that? As long as you're like texting your friends like you should be at church. We're like, 
reading the Bible on your phone, checking in, telling all their friends like they're missing out. Like, that's cool. I'm cool with that. And we're going to put it on the screen. So here we go. James 2. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? Look at that. Someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. All right, now we're talking about a different angle now. This is kind of a different conversation we're about to launch into. And some of you, you just heard that, and you can already feel your inner legalist rising up inside of you. Yeah, faith without works is dead. Preach that, Ryan. Tell me what I have to do to be a good Christian. Give me a list. I want a list. Like, like how much do I have to read the Bible? Like, I'll do it. What shows do I have to stop watching? I'll block them. Tell me what to do. Tell me. Because just naturally, our sinful nature is to try and earn what we cannot earn, right? So, so we'll just push that inner legalist down for a minute. He says, faith without works is dead. And so we're going to talk about that. Here's the first thing to write down if you're taking notes. Dead faith does not save. Dead faith, and notice faith is in quotation marks because it's not real faith. It's dead faith does not save. We routinely hear... Hey, man, you're saved by faith, not by works. And so if you've been around church for a while, you can start to get this negative perception of works. Like, works are bad. Boo, boo works. And that's not the way it is, right? The right kind of works done for the right reasons are good. Here's what good works are. Good works, by definition, here it is. Loving God, and because you love God, loving people. That's a good work. Love God and love people. Those are good works. If you have no good works in your life, if you don't have love in your heart for God, and you don't have love in your heart for people, it's a good sign that you could have dead faith. So I'm going to give you an illustration that Charles Spurgeon gave. He was a pastor in London a long time ago, back before it was cool to have a large church. He had a huge church, and he would preach to thousands of people with no microphone, and he's great. Here's his illustration for us. A tree has been planted into the ground. Now, the source of life to that tree is the root. Whether it has apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life. But the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it is dead. And you are correct. It is dead. It is not the leaves that could have made it live, but that the absence of leaves is proof that it is dead. Okay, maybe you didn't catch all that. I hope you did, but I'm going to summarize it for you. Leaves and fruit do not make a tree alive. A tree has leaves and fruit because it is alive. Okay? In the same way, good works do not save you. You do good works because you are saved. Dead faith says, talks a good, talks a good game, right? Like ha, has a lot to say, but does nothing. It, it, you could say it this way. Dead faith is all lip service and no lifestyle. 
You know people like that? They're all lip service, no lifestyle. They talk a lot about Christianity. They got a lot of theories. They'll blog about things, right? But like, you don't see any evidence of their faith in their life. All lip service, no lifestyle. Here's the example that Grandpa James gives us. He says, suppose a brother or sister is lacking proper clothing and they're hungry without daily food. Now understand what, what, he, what that means. I want you to understand the full aspect of this. When he says brother or sister, that means like someone who is a believer in your church family, right? And then when he says lacking adequate clothing, that doesn't mean that you had to get the Walmart brand and you couldn't afford the Ralph Lauren polo shirt, right? Like, it's saying like, you have no clothes, you're naked. Not you couldn't get the Versace dress, like you're naked. Like dudes out in the winter without a coat on, shivering. And then when he says, you know, you're lacking daily food, he was talking to people who are going through a real hard time of poverty. Like all of us, most of us are trying to eat less food. These people were starving to death. So suppose you come across a brother or sister from your life group who's out in the cold in the snow. That's a thing that's white that falls on the ground. It's very cold. And shivering, freezing. And you say, bro, you look cold. You know what you should do? You should get a coat. You should get a coat. I'm going to pray that God brings you a coat. (laughs) Keep warm, bro. I'm out. Suppose you come across a sister from your life group. She's literally starving to death. She has nothing to eat. And you say, well, guess what? You should eat something. That's what you should do. Like, you're hungry. I know. You should eat something. Have a sandwich. Right? James is saying the coat that he needs is in your closet. Go get it and give it to him. The sandwich that she needs is in your fridge. Go get it and give it to her. If you just look at that need and you say, hey, bro, keep warm, Uh, keep well fed. God bless you. I got to get home for dinner. It's cold out here. Like James says, what good is that faith? It's no good. And then he says, can that faith save him? What does that mean? That means that if you have this kind of dead faith, dead faith, it's a good sign you have probably not experienced true saving faith. Dead faith is a profession that you do not practice because you do not possess true salvation. This dead faith, it lacks life like a dead body lacks life. What do dead people do? Nothing. What does dead faith do? Nothing. Dead faith does nothing. The kind of faith that saves, saving faith, it produces good works. Remember, we're not saved by doing good works. We're saved to do good works. All right, so then James goes on to verse 18, right? And he says this. He launches into kind of this debate with a a person, right? But someone will say, right? There's probably a dude in the church there in Jerusalem that's teaching all kinds of of false teachings. Like, we'll call him Fred. Drop dead Fred. Fred, he has dead faith. Someone will say, not Fred or anything, but someone I'm sure is out there saying, you have faith and I have works, In other words, Fred is saying like, hey man, faith and works are two separate things. They don't necessarily go together. Let's keep it simple. You have faith, I have works. Let's not complicate things by trying to tie those two things together, right? Okay, so so James is talking trash there. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Okay, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. 
In other words, like you're talking this big game, like you say you have faith. Well, show me. How, how can I know you have faith? I'll show you. I'll just walk the walk, right? Like you can see I have faith. So here's an example, okay? Like dude saying, I have faith. I have faith. You came in today. You came into church and you took a seat. You found a chair. It's made out of steel. It's strong. It can hold you no matter. I mean, you're good, right? Like that chair can hold you. So, but let's just say, let's just say you came in and I was like, hey, good to see you. Have a seat. Do you have faith that this stool can hold you? Do you have faith? You'd say, oh yeah, I have faith. That's, that's some solid wood right there. That could hold me. I don't weigh that much. All right, great. Have a seat. No, I'm good. But you have faith that can hold you, right? Yeah, I have faith that can hold me totally. Then go ahead, sit down. Yeah, I'd rather stand. But you said you have faith that can hold you, so you're acting kind of weird here. You won't sit. What's up with that? Yeah, I'm just more comfortable not sitting in that chair, but I definitely have faith that can hold me. It doesn't line up, does it? Or, or how about this? Like, how did you learn to swim? How did you learn how to swim? All right. For, for me, my dad went like this. Right? Okay, but maybe you had a dad who like got in the pool and you know he said, All right, jump to daddy. I'll catch you. I won't let anything happen to you. And the kids stand there. This is what kids always do, right? They're standing there like, I don't know, I don't know. You're like, come on, you can you can do it. Do you trust your dad? Yeah. Okay, jump. No. (laughs) It's okay, just just do it. I'll get you. Nothing's gonna happen to you. Jump. I don't want to jump. But but you trust me, right? Do you trust your dad? Yes, I trust you. Okay, great. Jump. Uh, I can't. I can't. And then this negotiation will happen, right? Like, how do I know I can trust you? Because I haven't drowned you in the bathtub. Like, just jump. There comes a point where if you don't jump, you don't have faith, right? The kid sometimes trusts his footing more than his father. That's why my dad, he was just like, there you go. I'm going to help you with that, (laughs) right? If you never sit in the chair, if you never jump, if you never produce good fruit with your life, it's a good sign you have dead faith. Does that seem seem kind of harsh, right? It seems kind of of bad. It's going to get worse, okay, right? But a lot of people say, but I believe in God. How many people have you ever heard? Yeah, I believe in God, or or even that I believe in Jesus, what do, you, what do you believe about him? Like, yeah, he was a good dude, died, rose again, supposedly. I mean, I believe in him, right? James goes on, 2, verse 19. He talks to Fred, right? He says, you believe that God is one? Good job. Even the demons believe and shudder, right? Still talking to this antagonist. He said, you believe God is one. You're a monotheist. Great, good job. Uh, even the demons have that figured out. At least they shudder. At least they live in fear of God. You don't even act like he's a problem. And the demons, this reference to demons, this is actually really interesting. You need to realize this. The demons in the Bible, we see them talking, we see accounts. They have a better understanding of Jesus and who he is than most people, than most pastors, than most theologians. They know exactly who he is. And I'll show you an example. In Mark 1, Verse 34, it says, And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. His own disciples didn't even know who he was yet. They're like, he's a good teacher. But as Jesus cast these demons out of people, he's like, no, 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 don't say anything. 
I don't want my PR campaign to take off yet. It's not the right time. Goes on, Mark 5, verse 7. Jesus cast a demon out, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Right? There's a lot of seminary professors today like teaching this garbage like, Well, Jesus was surely a good man, but can you honestly say you believe he was God? Was he maybe just a prophet of God or a good man who came to show us God's love? No, even the demons know this is the son of the most high God. Luke 4.34. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Like they knew, like if he wants to, he could take us out. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, be silent and come out of him. See, even demons know who Jesus is. They, they know who he is. They recognize who he is. So a person saying like, well, I believe in Jesus. Okay, well, you're in the same category of a demon then. All right, and this demonic faith does not save. This is the second point to write down. Demonic faith does not save. Why, why the phrase demonic faith? I think it's appropriate because demons deceive. Satan is the father of lies. And he wants to deceive you into believing that intellectual facts can substitute for saving faith. Satan is the father of lies. You notice that the demons didn't try to lie to Jesus. They're like, we're not going to try to lie to the Son of God. We know who he is. Demonic faith this is what a lot of people have. They have demonic faith. You might not realize it. You might not have ever thought about it like this. But a lot of people have demonic faith just like the demons. And a lot of times, actually a lot worse. So here, here's what demonic faith looks like. Here's how you can recognize it first. Demonic faith has information, but not transformation. Oh, you've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. You've been in Sunday school a long time. You got little stickers, and you got little stars on your chart, and you got little badges to prove it. You heard a lot of good stuff. You come to church for a long time. You heard a lot of good teaching, a lot of information, right? But it hasn't changed anything in your life. This information has led to no transformation. A guy says like, oh yeah, I know a lot of good doctrine. I've heard all the theories. I know a lot of scripture verses. Don't really care. Not going to change. I'm still the same guy I was. That's demonic faith. Two, demonic faith knows about Jesus, but does not love Jesus. Those demons, they knew who he was. Like, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. Right? That's how a lot of people are. I believe in Jesus. I know who he is. I know the whole story. I've been to Easter with my grandma a couple times. You know, he died on the cross, rose again, but you don't love him. You don't love him. That's demonic faith. Right? There's people that they come to church every week. They hear us talking about Jesus. They hear us singing about Jesus, and they feel nothing in their heart for him. Right? I'm not saying you have to cry and like dance and do a little move or anything. Like Maybe you're more reserved, but I hope that you feel love for him in your heart. Like, I hope you feel moved and grateful thinking about what he's done for you. A lot of people, I say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. I just don't care about him. Like, I, I never asked him to die for me. Right? People that know about him but don't love him. Three, demonic faith is rebellious and not repentant. Rebellious and not repentant. I believe in God. I know what he said I should do, but I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. The demons, they rebelled against God. That's why they were cast out of heaven. I'm not going to do it, right? Like, if you have this kind of faith, like, you are like a demon. And this is really scary for people that grew up in church. Really scary for people that grew up in church. That's why I think my favorite baptism testimonies are the kids that say, yeah, I grew up in church. The people that say, I grew up in church. 
Because if you grow up around Christians, right, a lot of times you'll, you'll learn information, you'll memorize verses, you'll kind of get to the head full of knowledge, you'll understand the Christian jargon and how you're supposed to behave, and it can give you a false sense of security, like church attendance is a substitute for faith. The heroin addict who's getting baptized, like he knows he's messed up and broken and he needs Jesus. But a lot of times like the church guy, he's like, yeah, I've been going to church a long time. You know, like, can I kind of inherit my mom's faith? That's a problem. If that information does not lead to transformation, man, just, just have faith like the demons. So do you want to Do you want to know? Do you want to know what real faith looks like? We're going to launch into this example now, starting in verse 20, and James is going to give us an example. Do you want to know? Do you want to be shown, right? He says, you foolish person. I think he's talking to Fred, but the faith apart from works is useless. And then he goes into this example. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. I want you to notice that word completed. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Okay, we're going to talk about that because this can be confusing. I'm going to explain this. I'll give you a little background if you don't know the story of Abraham. He was father Abraham, father of many nations. He had many sons. Many sons had father Abraham. If you did not grow up in church, you're like, what is going on right now? Like, that's church kids songs like from Sunday school, right? Uh, Abraham, he was promised that he would be the father of many nations, but he was fatherless. He had no children. God said, I'm going to give you a son. Abraham waited a long time for that promised son to show up. Many years later into life, Abraham and Sarah, way past childbearing age, had a son. And we don't even want to think about how that happens, okay? And they named him Isaac, and Isaac was this promised son. So he was a gift from God. Abraham loved his son. And then later, in Genesis 22, Abraham is told by God, take your son Isaac up on Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me as a burnt offering. Rick, Rick, what? <laughs> so then Abraham's like, here, son, I want you to put this bundle of wood on your shoulders. We're going to go up the mountain and make a sacrifice to God. And Abraham, I'm sure like his son is like, yo, dad, where's, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's like, oh, yeah. God will provide one. <laughs> right? So like they go up the mountain. You can just imagine like Isaac lays down on the altar and Abraham's like, just hold really still. And I'm sure he's like, yo, dad, what is going on right now? Like, it's all good, son. And then, like, right as he's about to thrust the knife into the chest of his son, his Bible says the angel of the Lord spoke from heaven. Probably it was Jesus himself before he was incarnated and said, stop, don't lay a hand on your son. And then Abraham looked and saw that there was a ram caught in the thicket by the horns. God provided a substitute sacrifice so that the promised son Isaac could live. This was all foreshadowing of Jesus who would carry wood on his back up a hill. And he would be the substitutionary atonement for our sins. He would take our place on the cross to, t- to take away our sins. And God the Father gave up his dearly loved son. He said to Abraham, give up your son, your only son whom you love. What did he say about Jesus? My only son, my one and only son whom I love. And he gave him up for us. 
What kind of faith leads Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his son? It's dynamic faith. Dynamic faith saves. True faith is dynamic. It's, it saves. It's moving. It's active. It's alive. Now, a lot of you right now are like, I couldn't sacrifice my kid. I don't know if I could do that. Like, this is freaking me out. What are we going with this? And you don't have to have as much faith as Abraham had. You just need faith the size of a mustard seed. Faith the size of a mustard seed can grow into a large tree which birds of prey can perch in, the Bible says. Faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. Abraham, he did not get to that point overnight. We're going to talk about that. Dynamic faith saves. The type of faith that would move Abraham to sacrifice his son. If he's willing to do that, obviously, that guy has real faith, right? So here's what dynamic faith looks like. One, dynamic faith loves God and consequently loves people, however imperfectly. Like how many of you know we're going to love God, but it's going to be imperfect? I'm not perfect. I'm not going to love him perfectly. And I want to love people, but I'm not going to love them perfectly, unfortunately. But dynamic faith, like real saving faith, the kind of faith that transforms you and changes you, it will cause you to love God and it will cause you to start to love people. You see this amazing example of what Abraham did for God. There's another example given in James 2.25. It says, and in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? This is so great. Because then first James uses the example of Father Abraham, who's like a hero of the faith, right? And they're like, oh, everybody looked up to Abraham. He's the man, right? But then he goes into this other example, and he's like, what, what about Rahab the prostitute? When she received the spies as they infiltrated into Jericho, and she committed treason against her own people to hide God's people and, and to help them escape, because she had a faith in her heart. She had a small amount of faith. She knew, well, God's people are coming, and, and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they, they've got to be better than what I'm experiencing now, so I'm going to help them. I'm going to help them and hope that God blesses me for it, and he shows me favor. She had even just a small amount of faith, but, but, but she was not perfect either. Right? Her name is referenced here is Rahab the prostitute, not Rahab the former prostitute. Prostitution was not well looked upon back then, just like it's not right now. And yet God says, like, look at how she had faith. Even, even her faith shows you what an example of real living dynamic faith looks like. It's encouraging to us to know that as we love God, as we love people, we don't have to be perfect. Abraham wasn't perfect. This whole account that took place in Genesis 22, where Abraham had this great show of faith, this is a long way he's come from his earlier years when he did some stupid things. Do you guys remember the whole story about Abraham lying about his wife, Sarah, and saying, yeah, she's my sister. Take her as your wife. Just don't hurt me, okay? Like, how many of you think they fought about that later on in life, right? Like, every time they got in a fight, I'm sure Sarah was like, oh, you're going to sell me off to the highest bidder again, right? Like, Abraham was immature. He was foolish, but he grew. He grew and he became more godly. He became more strong in his faith. He didn't get to that point overnight. And that's encouraging to you. You might not be perfect yet. You might not have it all together yet. But if you keep following Jesus, you'll grow in faith. The small amount of love that you have for God now will grow into more love. Two, dynamic faith obeys God. Dynamic faith obeys God. Abraham showed us that believing is doing. Believing cannot be separated from doing. 
In fact, when the Bible uses the word believe, it is inherently communicated that you will also do if you truly believe. Okay, so this is like the kind of exchange you've had with your kids, right? Where you like you say, go clean your room. And your child's, okay, I'll clean my room. Go, 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 go now and clean your room. All right, I will. Then, then do it, like go right now. You're gonna clean your room. Like, yes, I will. <laughs> right, here, don't, delayed obedience is disobedience. If you're a parent, you should be writing that down. I just gave you a great little nugget of gold. You can use this for the rest of your life. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Let me just ask you lovingly as your pastor, are you delaying in obedience to something that God has already told you to do? Like none of us are perfect and we haven't yet done everything we're supposed to do, but, but maybe right now God's putting something in your mind and you know, like he has shown me that I should do this. I've heard him say it. I've seen it in his word and I just haven't done it yet. Delayed obedience is disobedience. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you've experienced true dynamic faith, you'll see that obedience comes into practice in your life. Not, not always perfectly, not always right away, but you're gonna start to obey God. You're gonna start to do what he says to do. Here's number three. Dynamic faith saves, it produces dynamic works, and brings dynamic blessings. True dynamic faith, it saves you. And you're not saved because you do good works, but when you've experienced true dynamic faith, that will produce good works in your life. And when you do good works, when you love God and you love people and you do the things that God told you to do, you will experience dynamic blessings in your life. Blessings. Does your life lack blessing? If it lacks blessing, I would propose to you that it also lacks obedience. I'm not saying that it's always easy. I'm not saying it's always going to be perfect. You're not going to go through trials and testing. But you know, even when I go through hard times as a Christian, I can still look around and see all the blessing of God on my life. I can see where he's protected me and preserved me. I can see that he's given me joy, which is not explainable, right? God's blessing is all around us. I have not lacked for anything. I have not starved to death yet, right? When you put, when you put your faith truly in Jesus... You're going to see that as it produces good works and you start to do the things that God told you to do, you're going to experience the gifts that he wants to give you. Here's an example of this. In Genesis 26, 4, right? This is Abraham. He said, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he just made Abraham stupid rich. Okay, this is later on after Genesis 22. This is from Genesis 26. What does he say next? Why is he giving Abraham all this blessing? Verse five says, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. We are not saved by following God's commandments, are we? Because we can't do it. But when we follow God's commandments, we experience the blessing that he wants us to experience. So if you want to see more blessing in your life, start doing the things that God told you to do. Right. When you do the things he told you to do, you'll experience the things he wants you to experience. When you follow Jesus, you'll find yourself in a much better place than where you started. Allow him to bless you by obeying him. So here's the question that some of you are asking right now. I've been asked this question like as soon as we started this series. 
Why do Paul and James seem to contradict? Why do Paul and James seem to contradict? I'll show you an example of this. In Romans 4, verses 2 through 3, Paul is going to write about Abraham. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. All right, if you've been paying attention, you will see these things seem to contradict. Seems like James just told us Abraham is not just justified by faith, but also by works. And Paul just told us Abraham can't boast about his works because he's saved by faith. And if you've been reading along with us, you're paying attention, you might be thinking right now like, yo, I don't get it. (laughs) Like, what's going on? (laughs) Help me out here. Because my friends tell me the Bible's full of contradictions, and I wondered about that. And so, like, I'm worried right now. Okay, I'm going to explain this. It sounds like they mean the opposite thing, but Paul and James are actually friends. They are friends. Okay? They get along great. Paul tells us that later on in his ministry, he wanted to check and make sure he was teaching the right thing. So he goes back to Jerusalem to hang out with James and ask him, am I doing a good job? Like, am I teaching the right doctrine? I just need to check myself. If they disagreed with each other and they were enemies, right? They wouldn't get along, but they're friends. Paul looked at James like a pastor in a lot of ways. So they are giving us two different sides of the same coin. That's why there's two seemingly different messages in Scripture. And I just want to talk about that for a second. Sometimes you'll read things in the Bible that if you just take one little snippet by itself, it seems to contradict something else. That's why you have to consider what the Bible says, the whole counsel of Scripture. the whole. Because you'll see when you consider the whole counsel of Scripture that God gives us different types of messages for different reasons. And they, sometimes they seem, to kind of, they seem to kind of fight with each other. I'm going to give you some examples. In John 15, Jesus said, you didn't choose me, I chose you, right? I, I chose you. And then later he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So wait, does God choose me or do I choose God? Which one is it? Yes. Yes, it is, right? God knew in advance that he would give you free will and that you would receive the truth and choose to follow Jesus, People get all caught up and like, was I predestined to be saved or did I have free will? Yes. I'll give you another example. Jesus said, nobody will snatch them out of my hand. And then he also said in John 15, if you abide in me, if you abide in me. Wait, wait. I thought he said nobody could snatch me out of my hand. Like, but then he says, if you abide, it sounds like there's some risk there. Well, is my salvation secure or can I walk away from God? Yes. Exactly, right? He wants us to know, he wants us to know, like, you're not gonna get snatched out of the hands of Jesus by the enemy. You're not gonna lose your salvation like you lost your keys this week. Oh, no, right? On the other hand, God gave you free will, and if you choose to walk away from him, he's not gonna put you in a headlock and drag you into heaven. So he said, you're not gonna lose your salvation, but at the same time, if you wanna hang out with me, right, like, you're not going anywhere. Don't worry, I have you, you're secure, so, so there seems to be this, this tension there, right? And, and I believe that we are supposed to wrestle with the full counsel of Scripture for a reason. Some people say, Ryan, that's lazy theology. You need to figure this out. You need to figure it out so you can tell me so I can figure it out. 
right? And I would say, it's not lazy theology, it's divine tension. God wants you to wrestle with the truth. He, there's some things that he makes very clear in black and white, and there's other things that he kind of, he wants us to sit in this divine tension so that we don't drift too far one way or the other, right? And this is one of those things. We don't need total understanding to be saved. We need simple faith, right? You're not going to figure this out completely because you're a human being created in the image of God, but you're not God. So you can't understand how he does everything that he does, and that should not freak you out too much, Right? Like, I barely put my pants on in the morning. I cannot figure out how God saves exactly. I just know what he told me in the Bible. So we don't need to be perfect to be blessed. We need dynamic faith, which obeys and moves in pursuit of Jesus. People say the Bible's full of contradictions. No, it's not. Show me one. I, I don't know, but, but it is. I'm gonna go home and Google, I'll find one. No, you're not considering the whole counsel of scripture. I'm gonna make this more clear, okay? Paul and James prescribe truth for two different patients. If you were to go to the doctor's office and eavesdrop on the doctor, which would be really wrong, okay, violation of privacy and all, but let's just say you were, right? You're listening, what's he say? And the doctor goes into one room and he says, you need to rest. And then that doctor goes into another room and he says, you need to exercise. <laughs> right? You could be sitting there like, oh, oh, wait, this doctor is full of contradictions. No, he's talking to two different patients. One patient needs to rest, and one patient needs to exercise. That's why God gives us this message like he does, right? Paul is telling us how to be saved, right? So he's speaking to the Gentiles in Rome. They ask him, how can we be saved? Tell us what to do. Do we have to sacrifice a bull? Do we need to go on a missionary trip to Jerusalem? Do I have to pray a 1,000 Hail Marys and 10,000 Our Fathers, right? Like, what, what is it exactly? And Paul is saying... Stop trying to earn your salvation. You cannot earn it. You receive it as a gift by faith alone. But then there's James, and he's telling us how to live as one who is saved. He's talking to the Jews in Jerusalem, and they're saying, okay, well, we're saved. You know, what should we do now? And Paul's saying, get off your butts and live for Jesus. If you, if you don't love God, James is saying, if you don't love people, it's a good sign you have not experienced saving faith. Paul emphasized the beginning of salvation, and James emphasizes the result of salvation. Paul warns us against works that compete with faith. James shows us how works complete faith. You see this? This is so good. It's not even that confusing. It's not that confusing. It's pretty clear. It says this in Ephesians 2.8, and you're going to see how these come together. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Look, but people forget about verse 10. They stop there, but they forget what verse 10 says. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. All right, we're saved by faith. We can't boast about it. It's a gift of God. But look, what, what did it say in verse 10? It shows us the whole picture. Jesus did the work for us. Jesus is still working on us, and Jesus wants to work through us. 
I'm going to say that again. Jesus did the work for us. He did what was required to earn our salvation because we could not. Jesus is still working on us. We are his workmanship. He's helping us to grow and become more like him. And he hasn't given up on you yet. He's helping you. He's, he's shaping you. He's forming you. So you don't have to freak out if you're not perfect yet. And Jesus wants to work through us. He wants us to live and produce good works, right? We were designed by God to do good works. Originally, God designed us to want to love him and to love people. And so when we place our faith in Jesus and we're saved, it allows us to get back to doing what we were originally designed to do. Good, loving God and loving people. This is good. So... I'll read you the words of Jesus when he said in John 14, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. So this tells you like, if you've experienced dynamic saving faith, true faith that changes you from the inside out, you can have confidence. You can have total confidence. God has saved me. I'm not trying to earn his favor. He loves me today. He's not gonna love me more next year. When I read the Bible a little bit more often, he loves me right now. But then Jesus told us like, I've saved you and, and now you're gonna do the works that I did. You're gonna go out, you're gonna love people. You're gonna be like me. You're gonna do the things I did. So that gives us some things to think about. First, if you're here and you've been a kind of afraid today and you've been wrestling, like, how do I know I'm saved? Am I, am I really saved, you know? Like, what do I need to do? I'm kind of worried about it. Like, you don't need to worry about it. Stop, I'll say this, most of the time, if you're worried about being saved, it's a good sign that you are saved. Because most people who are not, don't worry about it. They don't, they don't even care. And here's how you can know you're saved. Here's how you can know, besides you know, having actually declared with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you can look in your life and see areas where there is fruit, it's a good sign that you're saved. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but you can see like, oh, oh, there's this one area where I used to lose my temper all the time, but, but now I, I don't lose it as much. <laughs> And then there's this other area where I used to have thoughts like I shouldn't have, and, and, and now God's changing the way I see people. I'm not having those kind of thoughts. And then there's this other area where, man, I used to be so selfish, but now like, I'm becoming generous, and I'm like, how is this even happening? It's a good sign that you have experienced saving faith. You're not perfect yet. You're not where you want to be, but you're not where you used to be. And you can have that confidence. And if you're here and you're like, man, I don't know if I have been saved. Well, then you can take that step of faith today and you can experience salvation. The kind of faith that changes us and transforms us and leads to us loving God the way that he first loved us. So let's bow our heads in a moment of prayer right now. First, I just wanna pray for you if you're a Christian and you want the strength to follow Jesus and have a life that produces good works, good fruit, as a result of the life that's inside of you then let's just pray this together. You can just pray this with me and agree with me. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be more like Jesus, to do the good works that he did and even greater works through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to love you and love people the way that you desire. Lord, we pray that this church will be filled with followers of Jesus who have lives which produce good fruit. Lord, that there's evidence of it all around us that we could say to the world, we can show you our faith by our works. We're not trying to earn God's salvation or favor, right? We are doing these things because we have received salvation and favor as a gift. So we want you to know Jesus the way that we do. Lord, thank you for loving us as we grow and as we follow you. Amen. 
And, and I just want to pray also with anyone who might want to accept Jesus today, anyone who might need to pray this prayer uh, with me and say, hey, I want to be really, I want to be really, I want to be forgiven. I want to be changed. I want to follow Jesus. Let's just bow our heads one more time. And if you're here and you'd say, that's me, I want to take this step of faith today. I want to put my life in God's hands. I'm going to trust Jesus to save me. Then let's pray this. Lord, I have sinned and I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the debt for my sins. And I believe he rose again from the grave so that I could have eternal life. Thank you for loving me when I didn't love you. Now help me to follow you for the rest of my life and live in the fullness of your love. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're gonna just respond to this message by giving God the praise and worship that he deserves. And if you just prayed that prayer to accept Jesus as your savior, right? That is an amazing thing. That's something that we celebrate as a church that you have just received new life from God. So we wanna celebrate with you. We're about to give God praise, but we also wanna celebrate what he's done in your life. So if you just prayed and accepted Jesus, right? Like just shoot your hand up right now, just to say, that's me, that's awesome. Anyone else, great. Anyone else, thank you. That's awesome, anybody else? If you prayed that prayer, all right, we celebrate with you. We're gonna give God the praise that he deserves. Let's sing this out and just turn our focus to the cross of Jesus. Oh